Moses is there as the prince of Egypt. And I guess at this time, he's pretty much the most important guy, one of the most important guys in the world, right there to carry out this act. And yet in the story, the story of the Exodus, the story of God's people moving, Moses spends 40 years watching sheep in the desert. This is the plan of God. Why is that the story? It comes back to Pharaoh, to Egypt, as an old man, lost a bit of his confidence, lost his voice a little bit, a few more wrinkles than he had when he left, probably not as confident, and he stands before Pharaoh, a bit more cowardly, and he says, let my people go. Because this story is not just the story of a revolution, it's not just the story of a of a kingdom being threatened, of a new empire. This is a story that points to God. It's why Jesus, when he comes and he starts his ministry, going to grow his kingdom, going to build his kingdom here. Revolution starts with 12 fairly simple. That's not fair. I don't know that they were simple. 12 ordinary, fairly normal Seems to be not that educated, mostly fishermen. And he starts a revolution because the story is not just a story of a revolution. This is a story that points to God. You see, God's ways are not, you know where I'm going? God's ways are not always man's ways. There is a way, Solomon said, that seems right to men, but it ends in a bad place. It ends in death. You can look up that later on in Proverbs, if you like. It matters. It matters what our stories point to. It matters what our stories point to. Jesus says, and he's thinking about sort of eternal things, and he's telling kind of an eternal parable, and he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The the things that you focus most on in the world, the place that you're heading to most in the world is has got eternal consequences. This is bigger than you know what your, your story, the thing that you want, that the thing that defines you matters. I want you to imagine for a second uh, that somebody, unlikely as it may sound, somebody, some Hollywood bigwig, some producer um, in Los Angeles comes over and he says, he pulls you out and says, I, I want to make a biopic about you. I want to make a film about you right now. I w- up to the point, it really interests me. I've heard about your stories. I've seen you on social media. I want to make a film about you. And I want to, to take you aside and I want to really investigate you. And I'm going to spend hours interviewing you and really finding out all about you. And as they put in this film together, you're quite a complex character. Not really complex, but quite a complex character. And they really need to pull in these strands. And he says to you, as they're making this biopic of you, the story of you, your chance to be the star, We really want it to be about one thing. We don't want to tell loads of different stories. People don't watch films with too much going on. They're not, our attention spans are too short. We can't cope with all the different stories. We want to tell one story. So we want to make the story of you. We want to find out the one defining journey that you're on. What do we learn if we make the film of you? Where does it take us? Have a think about that for yourself. Where do you end up? Are you, is is the point that you're a a good guy? Is it that you're an out-and-out Leeds fan and wouldn't do anything else? Is it that you're somebody who's trying to change the world? Is it that you're a worrier 
and you never get past worrying. What would be the story of you? It matters. The Bible says that it really matters where our stories point to. One of the things I was thinking about as I reflected on this, because it's horrible when you're the preacher, because then you have to ask yourself the question. And I thought, well, a lot of the time I feel like I'm heading in not a bad direction, but there's definitely times where if you made the film of me, man, it would be horrible viewing different seasons of my life, a couple of years here and there, where if, if you tried to figure out the direction I was traveling, man, it would be all over the place. In the highs and lows of life, our directions change rapidly, don't we? It's like you put a microscope on our character in those moments, isn't it? In the extremes of life, in the really tough times and in the really brilliant times, character just shines through. It matters what our story points to. We're going to get back into the text in Acts. So when we did the story of us, we were in the text in Acts. And we remember as we made our way through the story of Acts, there were lots of good lessons for us to learn along the way. There were, we kind of tried to take a, a step back, sort of a 2,000 feet assessment of the book of Acts, and we could learn lots about church and church principles. So we're in, we're in the story of Acts. This is, the, you know, the story of Acts includes the character of the Apostle Paul. So he's, he's had his conversion experience, he's making his way in the world, and this is after, a, after some tough times, after a lot of prayer, some fasting, and a bit of time in the desert, he's on his first missionary journey. He's going out to plant a church, and he heads out to this place called Lystra. And there's some funny events. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think back to what my first preach was like. I think it was pretty hellish. I mean, you might say right now, well, you've had some hellish ones since, Ash, and we've, we've suffered them, and we love you, and we're willing to work with you. But, man, there's been some ropey times along, <laughs> along the way. But this, this, is, you know, th this is the Apostle Paul, and this is where he, this is where he ends up. It's, it's brilliant. And there is, I don't know if Luke writes it knowing how funny it is. He's not with them at the time, but this is hilarious stuff. So hang on for that. You, I might not make you laugh, but trust me, that's a bad way to start a funny story, isn't it? But it is a really funny story. So verse 8, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At, then the man, at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So right off the bat there, knowing what it's like to preach, I'm already like, oh man, Paul, you're amazing. If you've got the awareness to look around at your congregation listening in, I guess they weren't a congregation, they were a crowd really. And he's, as he's preaching along, he's clocked that somebody's really zoning in on him. And he's, he's not just clocked that he's zoning in, but he's clocked that man, he's, he's really buying into it and he's getting everything that he's saying. And he knows that he's not well because he can see that he's not well. And he shouts at the guy, stand up. The guy stands up and he's well. Now, when you're preaching, I don't care how good your anecdotes are, how big a thing you're going to say, how well thought out your sermon is, if you get a guy to stand up that can't walk, then everyone's going to listen in. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's going to be buying into that story. That is, a, that is a good start to a sermon. So everybody's, everybody's in. But there is, it's, it's funny because there is a real mixed crowd here. Look between the lines of the text just just drop back a little bit because there is, there is a bit of a language barrier going on here. Paul, as we know, is the Roman citizen. He speaks Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. But the crowd is a bit of a mixed bag. A bit of a mixed bag of people. There's Jewish people there. 
there's obviously Greek-speaking people there. There's Roman influence there. But there's people from La- that speak the language of the Lyconians. I'm not 100% sure what that is, but I don't think it's the same as what everybody else was speaking. So there's this funny, this funny backstory. Paul is preaching, and I think he's preaching quite confidently. And you get the impression, you can see the people looking up at him. There's a miracle has happened, and then there is a stirring of the crowd. The crowd are moved. And if, if you've had the experience of preaching, I can imagine getting a bit of a buzz off this. You know, as I'm preaching, there's people like, yes, this is, you know, there's lots of commotion. There's lots of things happening. But what Paul doesn't quite realize, look in the text, what they're saying. They've got a different end of the stick to Paul. They say, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down on us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And they've got some pretty elaborate plans coming. We're not got there yet, but it's, there's some pretty crazy plans coming. And Paul's stood there preaching, and he's thinking in his, in his mind, this is, going, this is going fantastically well. Have you, ever, have you ever had that when you've been abroad, and you've had a moment where, where you, maybe you're in a restaurant or something like that, and you, you, you're, you're trying to explain something? English people are, are shocking for this. And you, you just you think... I'm speaking English, I'm sure they'll understand what I'm saying, and there's an awkward language barrier, and they look back at you and they're like, yeah, I think I'm buying what you're saying, I think I'm getting it, and so maybe you've had dinner in a restaurant, but later on you want to go back down to the pier or something like that, so you've had a five-minute conversation back and forth, and and the guy's looking at you, yes, yes, I've got what you're saying, I know what you want, and then he comes back five minutes later, and he's brought fresh lobster, and you're like, no, no, we've got, we're at completely wrong end of the stick here, and there's just this funny disconnect between what you're saying, Um, but it just doesn't seem to, this can often be the case that they kind of just go along nodding their head and there's this funny language barrier. This is what's going on as Paul is preaching here to the Lyconians. They're looking back at him and there is this seamed enthusiasm for what he's saying. There's a lot of excited commotion and I think Paul thinks, yes, this is, I'm g- delivering a great preach. I'm doing a great thing. And then coming around the corner, which I think, and I don't, again, I don't know if Luke knows just how funny this is. Verse 13, the priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and garlands to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. It's a really, in my mind, you know, there's Paul and Barnabas going together and Barnabas Barnabas is listening to Paul and he's like, yeah, maybe we're doing all right here. This is our first preach. This is going well. We're going to plant a church. It's all going to be good. And then he looks over his shoulder and the crowd have brought a bull and they've put garlands, which I think are like flowery things, over the bull. And it's this massive big procession. And I can see Barnabas, in my mind's eye, and we shouldn't always do this, but in my mind's eye, Paul, Paul is receiving the look from Barnabas saying, we've, we've, it's gone wrong. They've got the wrong end of the stick with whatever's going on here. It's gone, we've, I've, we've misplaced ourselves because they're bringing bulls with flowers. And I'm sure that's not what we had in mind when we started doing this preach. So there's a real mis- miscommunication here. But there's a backstory with it. You see, the crowd that he's listening to, if you, if you dig around at the history, they'd There was a legend that existed that years and years before, Zeus and Hermes, the gods, came down in human form to visit this region, and they went round knocking door to door, and in the story, everybody went, nah, you're not coming in, nah, you're not coming in. There was no hospitality at all for this guy, apart from one elderly couple up on the hillside who welcomed them into his home, and he made a temple where their house was, but everybody else was destroyed. So the Lyconians are like, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to get straight to the bulls, straight to the bulls and the garlands, and we're going to make a big deal of this. This is going to be a big celebration, but it's gone terribly wrong for Paul and Barnabas, who, as the bulls 
are brought to, towards him realize what's happening. So it's awkward miscommunication story. And then I think something really, you know, the lesson here, something really significant happens. Paul, as he looks around, I don't know how you would be trying to think how I would be in this situation. Maybe you would think for a second about the possibilities they've, make, they've made us a God. There's possibilities that come with somebody thinking you're a God. You know, we could use this situation. And I'm sure at some later point down the line, we can work the gospel in. You know, we'll, we'll enjoy a good foot rub. We'll enjoy, we'll enjoy them giving us some palace or something like that. We'll enjoy the benefits of this, and then we'll bring them the gospel. Paul clocks straight away. He's like, no, this, this is not the story of the good news. You can't exalt me like this. If you exalt me like this, then you miss everything. I think there's a great lesson for us here as God's church, as Christians, as his people. I think looking, looking at ourselves and looking at the church historically, so many times we kind of, we believe our own hype. These positions of exaltation come along and we take them. We think of ourselves as more holy than we ought. And church becomes, church can become full of a bunch of people who are just holy joes who look down on everybody else. And people look into the church and think, I'm not going in there. They think they're better than everybody else. And Paul sort of clocks that right at the start of the spread of the growth of the church, that this is the first reaction to, to his message of Christianity. They put him immediately on a pedestal and he rushes and he tears his clothes and he screams to the people. And this is what he says. He says, no, I am just, some versions say ordinary, some versions say human. I am just a human with good news. Part of the storyline of Christchurch is God moves already in an incredible way. And as he will continue to move in an incredible way, blessing us. The temptation for us when we get in this new space is we'll be really to like rest on our laurels, really think, yeah, we've got it all sorted. God's going ahead of us. All that's happening. And this story would really check us. Paul rushes to say, no, we, our story, the story of the gospel, the success of the gospel, the power of the good news about Jesus is that ordinary human beings are changed by the good news. Paul would go on to say later on when he wrote to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He says, I'm only, I'm only human like you. What should church look like? What are we tempted to make it look like? The strength of our story, the strength of our story is not in what we can achieve, is in the good news that we have. The most powerful tool for growth we have is not to promote that we've got it all together. Sometimes Christians look like that. It's not to promote that we've got it all together, but that we've realized that we haven't, and yet there is still hope. One of the challenges for, our, for us as Christchurch and for us as individuals is to go on for God and keep remembering that we are only messed up sinners. The power 
is what God can do. It matters then who your story points to. And the church will grow. The church in Lystra will grow as it strips back and it, as it observes Paul's example and sees ordinary people changed by the good news of Jesus. Now, this weird day, this day that I started just outright weird, takes another crazy turn. So we've had, this is definitely a day of two halves in the life of Paul. He starts off, so read ahead of me on the text, have a look. It starts off like, well, yeah, awesome, guy got healed, everybody's listening. Then it got really weird when they brought the bull in. Then some guys that were that followed him around a little bit, didn't like what he was saying. And Paul here gets, I guess, a taste of his own medicine. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. So what, this is what, they, you know, they'd taken the stones to him. They dragged him outside the city walls. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of this. If you've ever had the misfortune of coming across it on YouTube or you've watched a documentary, it is, this is brutal stuff. So he's gone from up there, and then they've thrown stones at him. And I think it reads like they've assumed he was dead. And even some commentators that I have read, and you can go away and read this yourself if you want, have thought he might well have been dead. The disciples go over to him, they gather around him, and he comes round. He comes round, and this is... And this is, I think, a day that the, the Lystrans in this church will never forget. He comes around and he walks back into the city. So they've taken stones. This guy's, he's got, he's got marks on his body that I think if you read some of his letters later on, makes you think that they've probably stayed there with him for the rest of his life. And he's taken this doing, this inch of your life beating, and he's gone back into the city. And I guess what this church sees not even necessarily what they hear, but the testimony they get to observe is of a man who in every circumstance of his life, whether he is in the highest, most lauded moment, or whether he's on his deathbed, points towards Christ. When he's, when he's lauded, when he's bigged up, when he's praised as an immortal God, he rushes back down to say, no, this is not the story. If you think this, then you're going to miss Christ. And when he is beaten to a pulp within an inch of his life, he gets back up and walks into the city because if, if, if he doesn't, the people will miss Christ. His whole life, this whole day, is a day that points towards the good news about God in every circumstance of his life. It's not so much as we think about what church is. It's not so much the physical events that shape our growth, but who we turn to, who we demonstrate in, that, in those moments. If you go on to read about the church at Lystra, this church that, when they first heard about the gospel, were smart or mistaken enough to go and grab a bull and put flowers on it. That was their first response. When you read about this church in Lystra, Paul goes back and visits them later on in a couple of chapters, and they are growing. There's, there's crazy language barriers. They've got hardly anything to hold on to. They've seen a man get beaten to within an inch of his life. There's persecution around the corner, and yet they are growing. This day that Paul spent with them, or this couple of weeks that Paul spent with them, has left a lasting impact 
from their life. Paul would later go on to write that he had found the secret of being content. You know that verse? In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I have learned the secret of being content. And what Paul had done in this moment, he had passed it on to this church, and I don't think they'd ever forgotten it. Later on, if you read through uh, one of the helpful things about, about the story of Acts is you can see some of Paul's letters, so Galatians, Thessalonians, other letters like that, which sort of connect back into some of the stories that are going on in the book of Acts. If you read through um, the book of Galatians, th this relates to some of this story. And Paul, as the church, so as it grows and it has become established, it doesn't, it doesn't, if you read Galatians, you'll find out it doesn't get everything right. <laughs> Makes quite a few mistakes, but Paul leaves them with an illustration, a couple of illustrations. Paul likes his illustrations, but one of the weirdest, oddest illustrations that you're ever going to come across in your life. He says this, Galatians 4, 19. My dear children, hard not to visualize this when I read it out. For whom I am again at the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My dear children. So Paul looks at this church. You know, second church that he went to, second bunch of people that he saw get saved, sort of had this weird day and yet this church grew and he looks at them and he cares for them as his, as his own children and he sees that they're messing it up and he says to them, here's what church is going to be like. You might not want to hear this, you might not even want to think about what this looks like and he, he describes himself as a guy about to give birth. Hard not to imagine a middle-aged man with that kind of illustration, is it? But that's the image that Paul puts in his mind. He said, look where I am again, thinking about you. And not only look where I am, it's plural. He says, look at where you are. You are all in the same spot about needing to give birth to Christ. It's like a mixed up, Paul didn't mind mixing his metaphors. It's quite a mixed up little picture. He says, you're needing to give birth to Christ again. He says, it's like that. It's like the pains of childbirth. In order for Christ to become mature, in order for this story to grow, in order for the church to be planted, this is where we're at again. We're at that place where we're about to give birth. It's going to be, it's going to be this amazing thing, and yet it's going to be this incredibly hard thing. It's going to be this thing that, and obviously I've not ever been pregnant, but at least to, to my um, masculine eye, just looks physically impossible, actually. When you look down at what needs to happen for a baby to come out, you look down and you think, this is, an this is an impossible thing. Paul's saying this is a thing that will look and feel impossible, and yet it will be incredibly possible. This is a thing that is going to, and again, from my man's perspective, I don't really know. I only heard the noises. This is going to be an incredibly painful thing. This is going to hurt. This is going to hurt so that your vocabulary changes so that you get within an inch of a few swear words, or you may even cross the line between the swear words. But it will also be such a beautiful thing that it will leave you completely speechless. This is what the church will be like. This is what it will be like. And as with childbirth, it's what will need to happen in order to bring life, that this thing will grow quote from a book I read recently. Pregnant women make the same mistake with midwives as church members do with God. You turn to them and think they make everything okay. You think that they're going to take all the pain and all the trauma away. But that's not what midwives do. Midwives stay there 
hold your hand and help you get through it. Church life, Christ Church over the next little while, is not, church life and church growth is not about everything being okay. That's not the storyline of the church. The storyline of the church is about who we turn to and who we demonstrate in the highs and lows of life. 